Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, OnScript listeners. I'm here with Aaron Heim, and today we're finishing up part two of something we started a few months ago, which is the reading of Aaron's paper, Resurrection and the Hashtag MeToo Movement. Uh, So if you haven't listened to that episode, you should go back now and listen to that one where Aaron read the first half of her paper, and we discussed uh, between her experience and uh, my life experience and the experience of our friends, um, how we identify with Jesus and about contextualized readings uh, of scripture as well. Today, we're going to finish up uh, the second half of the paper, and Aaron is going to read, and we're going to take breaks every once in a while and discuss. So with that, hi, Aaron. Are you still there? Hi, I'm still here. All right. Well, I'll turn it over to you at this point. Thanks, Drew. Uh, The second half of this paper uh, speaks about preaching him too, hashtag him too. So what I want to do in the second half of this paper is to contemplate the significance of Paul actually preaching the message of crucifixion and how Paul in 1 Corinthians connects the preaching of Christ's crucifixion to what he says about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And it follows on from the first half of the paper. So as Drew said, um, if you haven't listened to that, this will make much more sense if you listen to part one first. So the section of the paper is called, But We Preach Him Too, Reading Paul's Message of the Cross with Survivors of Sexual Violence. Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians by insisting that the gospel proclaims Christ crucified and that he clearly recognizes the cognitive dissonance preaching the crucifixion as good news creates. Nevertheless, Paul insists that his message of the cross shames the strong and reduces to nothing the things that are, 127 and 28. Paul's message of the cross scorns its disgrace, and it declares the empire's attempt to dehumanize Jesus through crucifixion to be null and void. Of course, there's nothing very novel about that observation. Any good commentary on 1 Corinthians remarks on the shame of the cross as Paul's rhetorical device to bring the haughty uh, Corinthians down to size. While this is certainly true, Paul's message sounds in a different register when we consider it not only as an in-house message that deflates the puffed-up Corinthians, but also as a bold, outward-facing declaration that refuses to be silent in the face of empire-sponsored torture and abuse. If torture is primarily about power, and if sexual violence is primarily an assertion of domination— then declaring hashtag me too or hashtag Christ crucified names the illegitimacy of that power. Moreover, Paul is not concerned with preserving the dignity or masculinity of Jesus in the course of his preaching, precisely because Jesus's dignity and masculinity are, in Paul's view, apparently not at odds with his being a victim of sexual humiliation. Make no mistake, though, the sexual humiliation Jesus endured was intended to be emasculating. Roman culture measured masculinity by the degree to which a man had agency over his body. Thus, from a Roman point of view, the crucifixion eviscerated Jesus's masculine identity. By proclaiming Christ's crucifixion, Paul upends the paradigm of masculinity 
And in doing so, he indicts the entire system of state-sponsored torture, whereby Roman soldiers can display their own masculinity at the expense of a powerless victim. So too, then, in our age, for those with ears to hear, Paul's message indicts any culture that perpetuates toxic stereotypes of male dominance through the objectification and exploitation of other vulnerable bodies. Moreover, Paul's declaration of Christ crucified is striking in its starkness. Paul preaches without euphemism. He doesn't even begin with resurrection, nor does he preach a softer message of Christ's death or of his passing away. His message is blunt. We preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1.23. Given the public spectacle that accompanied crucifixion, Paul's audience knew by this statement exactly the sort of death Jesus had died. They had likely witnessed themselves, or at least have heard about it, what victims of crucifixion endured during their executions. Declaring Me Too, participating in Paul's message. In his proclamation, Paul names Jesus' death by its rightful name, and in doing so, brings shame upon the powerful and the strong. Tarana Burke's words provide a powerful contemporary correlation. She says, quote, Sexual harassment does bring shame, and I think it's really powerful that this transfer is happening, that these women are able not just to share their shame, but to put the shame where it belongs, on the perpetrator. Paul insists, despite its foolishness, in the, in the eyes of the world, and particularly in the eyes of the powerful, that his message empowers those who are being saved. Survivors of sexual violence mirror Paul's declaration, bold declaration when they, too, courageously break the silence and speak their stories of sexual abuse, harassment, and assault. I would even suggest that whenever a Christian survivor of sexual abuse spe- speaks his or her story, She participates, or he participates, in the radical truth-telling of Paul's gospel declaration, restoration or re-crucifixion, responding to Me Too declarations. Like Paul, we as a community of survivors must resist the tendency to euphemize sexual violence, though I recognize that naming sexual violence by its rightful name can be difficult and painful. Furthermore, just as Paul recognized that his stark proclamation seemed foolish at face value, so too survivors recognize that breaking the silence is not always, or even often, met with support. Indeed, it is often met with shame, derision, and incredulity. In speaking out about my own sexual abuse, I myself have experienced this reaction and I recount some of my story here in order to participate in Paul's liberating act of truth-telling. My own disclosure has come in stages. My parents have known for about 10 years, but because I feared retaliation, I continued to see my abuser at family gatherings until a few years ago, when I suffered a panic attack that spiraled me into a pretty severe bout of depression. When it was clear that something needed to be done, my mother finally confronted my uncle's family. They, somewhat predictably, called me a liar, called me mistaken, they called me attention-seeking, and they said that I was, quote, swept up by that fucking Me Too movement. In the aftermath, 
Paul's foolish message of the cross sounded much less triumphant to my ears. Yet it likely sounded more like he intended it to sound, a fierce declaration of truth in the shadow of power that was anything but comfortable. For me, despite the fallout that it has had, this act of truth-telling was still a hard-won victory. It was my refusal to be silent any longer. It was my refusal and my mother's refusal to capitulate to the pressure to keep sexual abuse a private or a family matter. And it was part of my ongoing refusal to internalize the shame that threatens to overwhelm me as a victim of sexual abuse. In these moments, as a survivor, I take solace in Paul's gritty gospel proclamation. My own experience with disclosure is by no means unique, and indeed in some ways has been more positive than the experience of disclosure that others have had. Even when survivors of sexual violence do disclose, their disclosures have fallen on deaf ears within their families and communities. Here Paul's message of the crucified Christ teaches us that acts of truth-telling need an audience. Paul expected the Corinthian church to receive and embrace his difficult message. And likewise, we as a community and we as a society must be willing to listen to the uncomfortable stories of survivors without asking them to euphemize what happened to them or to minimize the ongoing impact of their trauma when it makes us feel uncomfortable. And this should be especially true within Christian communities. But history shows us that churches are among the quickest to defend the powerful and to trample the victims. There is no room for excuse. What is required is repentance and restorative justice. Just as Jesus stands in solidarity with those who have experienced sexual violence, so must also those who claim to follow him. A Christian community that accepts, supports, and believes Christian survivors is a community that makes tangible the hope of the resurrection through these acts of solidarity that dignify survivors and our stories in the present. Thank you, Aaron. Um, and thank you again uh, for being willing to talk openly. Um, it's obviously not easy for any of us. Um, and even as I was reading this yet again this morning in preparation for today, um, I thought about uh, men who, especially white men like myself, who are feel like they're being told constantly, um, at least at this moment in history, um, that we can't say anything. Everything that we say is wrong. Every time we say something, we're, uh, we're on pins and needles. Um, and then as you were just reading it now, uh, something came to my mind. Why, why don't men want to listen to some of this? Or why don't they just want to be quiet and listen? And part of it is I wonder if, even from my own experience, we don't want to talk about it. We, you know, those of us that have experienced sexual abuse uh, by others, um, like the last thing in the world I would want to do is talk about it openly. And so I wonder if there is, and not just men that feel this way, but this kind of like, hey, we've all we've all experienced this, so sh- you know, shut up and and tough it out or something. But I wonder if you if what the reaction you've heard from. Um, from men in general, especially like sincere Christian men who you think would like to help, but they don't know how, or they, or they feel insecure about saying anything to throw a a big heaping question on you. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's a few questions in there and I think, um, there's a number of really important things. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, I'd say 
in terms of, of not wanting to talk about it, I wonder if there's not kind of two things going on. One, um, I think anytime something happens, um, some, some body is, you know, somebody is violating your body, um, whether you are a woman or a man, although, um, statistically women are more likely to experience than that, that than men, but only by just. So anytime I think you have experienced some kind of violation in the body, that seems to us to be an intensely personal thing. Um, and a thing that brings, um, shame and embarrassment, um, because of cultural stigmas around bodies and agency and all sorts of things that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. So I think that feeling of shame is what leads us to um, internalize the hurt rather than talking about it in a way that is um, safe and productive. And I hope that we can learn um, as survivors to, to talk about and to name sexual violence in a way that um, brings healing and is productive. Um, so I think that's part of what's going on just in general. I wonder if the, um, if the, the piece of, of men not wanting to talk about it, um, because they seem inundated with, uh, me too declarations from women. Um, I think, I think it's possible that, and, and likely that we're naming an uncomfortable reality. And if we talk about it, we have to change something. We have to change something about the way we behave toward women and even, um, and if we acknowledge the problem, uh, and yet it's such a huge problem that we feel completely impotent to do something to affect positive change, um, I think then the easiest thing to do is just to pretend that it's not there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I and, wonder if that's not part of it. Yeah. And and I think also that uh, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, people who are listening, not just men and women, who haven't experienced any kind of sexual abuse. And and so for them, it, it's not a reality. And it really, you know, like there's this whole other world where they really do have to trust that this is really happening to people that they know. Um, the line that jumped off the page to me is that uh, this is switching uh, island hopping a little bit here, but um, is that you said that masculinity can include sexual powerlessness or something to that uh, that effect. And I and I wonder, as you're reading again, another idea popped in my head is does does the term or idea of masculinity really have much? Does it do much work for us here? Um, and in the sense of what you're you're hitting at in this paper is. That we we as men and women can identify with uh, the sexual abuse of Jesus and His crucifixion. Uh, I'll leave it there because it sounds like you know what you want to say. <laughs> no, I well, I think that's an important um, important question, and and in one sense, it is doing a lot of work in the paper that that um, in the sense that I want to name um, the fact that Roman crucifixion is meant to eviscerate masculinity. Um, in this, in with all of the cultural norms around masculinity in the first century, and I think if we don't pay attention to those dynamics of the text, we miss something pretty important about um, not only what Paul is saying, but also the gospel accounts. So I do think that it's doing it's doing some historical work in that sense. Um, I'd have to think more about what it would mean to have a redeemed masculinity. I certainly. Um, I don't want to say that there's uh, sort of an essentialist um, set of masculine characteristics, um, but I think I, what I want to say is that Paul affirms Jesus, the man, um, you know, uh, as a full human, um, 
and doesn't seem to have he doesn't seem to be embarrassed about the fact that he's suffered sexual humiliation that doesn't take away his manhood for for Paul or perhaps better it doesn't take away his personhood because Paul doesn't seem particularly concerned with any kind of cultural notions of manhood or womanhood um in these passages um and i think i think that's i think that's an interesting it might have some interesting theological implications for how we think about um, gender in the resurrection, um, because that cer- certainly doesn't seem to be a post-resurrection category, except to say that um, whatever the Romans intended uh, crucifixion to do to, um, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but um, intended to do to you know his body that would continue on with him to eternity. Like he would always be emasculated. Um, clearly I don't think Paul presents him in that way. Yeah. And I think, I think it's conceptually and I, and I don't know whether I can blame it on cultural notions of masculinity or not, but I think conceptually for men, especially young men to think that they could stand up and talk about being sexually abused and not in any way feel their quote unquote masculinity diminished in some significant way. It, it sounds impossible culturally speaking. And yet that's what I love about your paper is just like that he is just, he's not, he's not even mentioning it. He's proclaiming it as part of the victorious nature that, you know, the Christus Victor motif here. Yeah. And I think, what I would want to say to that is the extent that we continue to buy into that narrative that somehow um, being sexually abused emasculates someone is the, uh, I think, kind of the extent to which we still buy into this, I mean, what is a Roman in in, in the text, um, but I think there are some parallels, obviously, in different cultures, but this idea that we can basically rank bodies based on how much agency we have over bodies. So to be masculine is to be in control of your body and to um, be effeminized, if that's a word, <laughs> or emasculated is <laughs> to be emasculated is to lose that agency over your body. Um, and, you know, to be masculine means to dominate bodies and to be feminine means to be dominated. I think Paul is calling that whole paradigm um into question. And I think to the extent that we are embarrassed to talk about sexual violence. Um, is the extent to which we are still buying into that same paradigm, and I, I'm not—I don't think it has a place within Christian theology. Yeah, and I think that you mentioned the internalization earlier, and then we'll get to the, the last part of the paper here. That you know, even even with me to this day, I feel no anger towards this stranger who who molested me when I was five years old, going to the store. Uh, I only feel stupidity at myself. Like, why would I get in a car with that person? Why would I let them do that to me? Why, you know, why didn't I say something? Why didn't I didn't mention it to anybody? Why, why didn't I even try to protect other kids in the neighborhood? It it all just was a, a circle that comes always back to me and what I did wrongly. And so, uh, again, the idea of wanting to talk about that for and I'm I'm just uh, it may be just a different experience for different people, but. It doesn't feel empowering at all to me to to talk about this, and so I feel like when I read your paper, you're actually pushing me to say like, no, there's a way in which uh, there is a power to proclaim crucifixion, to find solidarity in Jesus's sexual abuse and the violence uh, perpetrated on him, um, and that, and actually that in speaking that truth, it, in some ways it gets it gets me off this internal narrative that keeps recycling in my head, um, that it's actually not a just about me, that it's, that's about other people as well um, who need to hear that truth. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really important point. And I also want to affirm that, you know, not every way of talking about sexual violence is empowering. Um, but we also need to find our our way, each one of us, I think, needs to find our way of speaking about um an experience of sexual violence that is empowering for for us. And I think um for me, that has meant naming what happened to me. Um which itself is a way of refusing to internalize that shame um, because it's so much easier to not talk about it, especially in the context of family violence. Um, it's just easier. It's just easier to pretend that you're, you're not affected by it. Um, and I want to, you know, by saying that I want to get to a point where I don't have bodily responses to trauma, um, you know, Un, unwanted bodily responses to trauma in the form of PTSD, um, unexpected ones. And part of being able to talk about this for me and to use plain language to name what's happening, um, not just what happened to me in the past, but what's happening in my body when I have a PTSD episode is that, um, that reclaimed, I guess, empowering way to talk about sexual violence. So I'm not saying that it works that that way for everyone, but that's been that's been my experience. Yeah. And for the pastors and professors out there who are in, uh, of course dealing with students and colleagues who have been through this, um there this the great book Bezel van der Kolk's uh The Body Keeps the Score, he talks about uh, what you mentioned there is there not every way of talking about these things is actually empowering and sometimes not helpful. You know, he he discovered some PTS therapies because he was coaching Vietnam veterans and found that making them talk about their traumas actually re-traumatized them. Um, so kind of talk therapy, which we've been taught is the be-all, end-all uh, of counseling, is actually not always helpful in all circumstances that, uh, because there's something going on in the body uh, that can't be merely talked about uh, in, in the simple ways that we think about it. So, Yeah, and I think... That, I think oh, that's sorry, a man. really, well, I, I want to mention something in, in connection with that, because I think that's a really important point to emphasize that like, it's, it's one thing for me to voluntarily enter into a space where I am conscious and cognizant that I'm going to be talking about this. Um, it's quite another to be sort of caught off guard and confronted with it in a church setting. And that's happened to me a few times, um, most often in the context of talking about forgiveness and um, sermons on forgiveness that ask you to um, think about the worst thing that's happened to you or someone who's wronged you in some um, really deep way, um, that th those, those experiences in church for me as a survivor of sexual violence um, are, are traumatizing. I, I, have, I have had um, recurring, you know, like a recurrent flashback and a panic attack in a service um, simply because the pastor who probably doesn't have in mind um, each individual concrete experience of trauma in the congregation is asking, you know, people who have traumatic memories possibly to be reliving those um, in the context of a service, which is not a safe place to be doing that. Um, and so I think they it's... Thought, they thought they were talking about Aunt Margie holding a grudge against, you know, I mean, that's someone just for not it. paying them back 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think... I think I want I, I want to emphasize the the importance of thinking th through forgiveness um, as a as a step of uh, toward freedom, but boy is that a, a tricky dance. Um, and I think we have to when we talk about forgiveness, um, 
especially in a church service, and we ask people to enter into that, you know, what is a very vulnerable space, we have to realize what we're inviting them to do. And it's not always going to be healthy or productive. So I think that's a really important point that we, there are ways of talking about this or ways of processing through this that actually are not health, healthy or helpful. And I think for the the pastors who are going to preach the Sunday um, and, and the professors who are, you know, sermonizing as well, I think uh, it just reminds us that preaching is a ritual and that it's it's a ritual that involves the bodies of everybody in the room. Uh, it's not just speaking to the soul, as I think as we like to think of it. So speaking of bodies, uh, I think this is going to be the, the main part of this last part here is talking about our body. So I'll, I'll let you get to that. Yeah, thanks. So this next part of the paper is called, But Someone Will Ask, How Are the Dead Raised? The Resurrection of a Hashtag Me Too Body. In 1 Corinthians 15.35, an imaginary interlocutor asks, how are the dead raised? Paul dismisses this as a foolish question, yet he nevertheless sets out an answer to it. But as a survivor of sexual abuse, to me, this question does not seem foolish at all. For me, this question is a source of deep personal anxiety. Sexual abuse, someone else sinning against my body, has led me at various times in my life to feel detached from my body, to detest my body, to punish my body through either undereating or overeating, and to abuse my body through self-harm. All of these attitudes and behaviors stem from attempts to regain a sense of control, agency, and autonomy over my violated body. Because I am a survivor of abuse, The message of resurrection has not always sounded like good news to me. Salvation as an escape from my body seems like a much more attractive option. In light of this, in my view, a Me Too reading of the resurrection must not minimize the degree to which survivors of sexual abuse experience a sense of betrayal from their bodies. Embodiment is not necessarily good news at face value, and eternal embodiment even less so. But I will cautiously propose here a reading of resurrection that attempts to speak a liberating message regarding embodiment. First, the resurrection affirms the dignity of a survivor's body. And second, the resurrection permanently affirms a survivor's agency over her body. I recognize here that I am asserting rather than arguing that there is bodily continuity in the resurrection, and I'm doing so for three primary reasons. First, and most significantly for a theological reading, this understanding of resurrection has been considered orthodox in the history of Christian interpretation, and it likewise reflects mainstream views of the physicality of resurrection during the Second Temple period. To speak of resurrection within the Christian tradition is to speak of bodily resurrection. Second, I note that the language of 1 Corinthians more naturally lends itself to some sort of bodily continuity. Paul speaks of sowing and raising, which is a metaphor that necessitates continuity between seed and plant. He speaks of being changed, which implies a single subject that undergoes transformation. And he speaks of the body putting on or being clothed with, which again implies that the perishable body adds something in the resurrection. 
Third, although the gospel accounts contain instances where Jesus' followers failed to recognize him after the resurrection, according to Luke and John, Jesus' resurrected body still bore the marks of the crucifixion, Luke 24, 39 through 40, or John 20, and 20, 20, 27. Thus, it would seem that the earliest testimonies of Jesus' body assumed that Jesus' resurrected body was the same body that had undergone crucifixion. Therefore, in my view, a theological reading of 1 Corinthians 15 begins with an affirmation of the crucified risen body of Jesus, which is in turn the model for all resurrected bodies. The last section is called, Remember Me Too When You Come Into Your Kingdom, The Dignification of Crucified Resurrected Bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's message of resurrection dignifies the crucified body of Jesus. And in turn, it dignifies all those whose bodies will bear the image of the man of heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, 49. In the resurrection, Jesus' body is no longer vulnerable to abuse or exploitation. Having been raised in glory and imperishability, he has permanently regained the agency and bodily autonomy that were forcibly taken from him during the, the torture of crucifixion. The resurrection does not erase his experience of crucifixion, but neither are his scars a source of ongoing shame and dishonor, as his Roman executioners intended them to be. Instead, the resurrection of Jesus' crucified body continues to bear witness against the hegemony of of the Roman Empire, proclaiming an end to its taxonomy of honored and shamed bodies. Far from being marks of dishonor, in the economy of the resurrection, Jesus' scars instead continue to testify against the injustice and cruelty of the crucifixion. In these ways, Jesus' own body, the, the body of the crucified resurrected Christ, shines forth as a beacon of hope for those who have experienced sexual violence. Paul's language for resurrected bodies in 1 Corinthians 15 is resplendent and effusive as he shockingly applies terms that Roman culture reserved only for the bodies of elite to all bodies, including those bodies that had been dishonored. Indeed, the terms Paul uses would have seemed ludicrous to his Roman executioners. In their minds, Jesus' ignominious status as one who had been dishonored in crucifixion persists even beyond death. Once a person's body had been shamed, it is shamed forever, even in the afterlife. Thus again, upending cultural expectations in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44, Paul sets out several unlikely sets of opposites. Having having been sown in dishonor and weakness, in the resurrection bodies are imperishable and raised in glory and power, and rather than being of perishable flesh, they are spiritual. Moreover, nowhere in this passage is there any hint of the sort of hierarchy among perishable bodies before the resurrection, which again flies in the face of Roman social norms. In Roman thought, bodies are not of intrinsic worth, but they're only implements for attaining glory. And further still, only the bodies of the elite are capable of attaining glory, and thus the bodies of the majority of the population function only as tools which serve the elite's pursuit of glory. And yet this pyramid of honor has no place in Paul's scheme of resurrection. Beginning with Jesus' own body, all bodies need to be fitted for glory. In this passage, Paul uses terms like glory and power, and those terms saturate the resurrected body with dignity. 
Paul's language here clearly communicates that in the resurrection, bodies are not instruments by which we can attain glory, nor are they nor can they be objectified and commodified for the glory of others. Instead, these bodies possess inherent dignity and worth, even and maybe especially those bodies that have been subjected to torture, violence, and abuse. Christian survivors of sexual abuse need to hear Paul's description of their resurrected bodies with the same level of concreteness with which we have experienced sexual violence. The good news of the resurrection must be proclaimed without abstraction. In 1 Corinthians 15, there is not only an affirmation of the goodness of God's creation in the abstract, but an affirmation of the glory of Jesus' own resurrected body, which itself is the first fruits of the resurrection. In Paul's view of the resurrection, there is an analogous affirmation of my body, the body of a Me Too survivor which Paul says will be fitted for glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, the God of the resurrection is a God who values all bodies, old bodies, young bodies, broken and tortured bodies, fit bodies, fat bodies, all differently abled bodies, abused bodies, bodies that have been subjected to illness, bodies that are alive when Jesus comes back, and bodies of those who have passed away. According to Paul, that includes my body. This body that was sinned against, this body that has carried such weighty memories of abuse, this body is the one that is valued by God and the one that will be fitted for glory. No matter how many times I read this section of the paper, I always tear up at that affirmation. No matter how many times I practice it. <laughs> Let the record show that I might be tearing up as well. But it's such an important point to me. Because without the personal... I, because I myself need to hear this paper more than anybody... Um, and I hope that it, I hope that it, it is a freeing thought to other listeners also. I'll finish just the, the last section. Living eternal life in a Me Too body. Agency and autonomy in the resurrection. Perhaps most significantly for me, and perhaps for other Christian survivors, is that in the resurrection, Jesus is not only glorious and imperishable, his agency and autonomy over his body has been restored. We see this most fully in the kingly rule and reign of Jesus that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, which culminates in nothing short of Jesus's victory over death, the final enemy. In the resurrection, Jesus' body is most assuredly his body. All outside threats to his agency have been defeated. Here the parallel between Jesus and Christian survivors is perhaps not as neat and clean. If all things will be subjected to Christ in the resurrection, then this surely also includes the bodies of Christian survivors. However, 
we must also notice two other details of Paul's language. First, in the resurrection, the body is sometimes the subject of Paul's verbs. The body puts on the imperishable and puts on immortality. The body as subject necessitates a restoration of agency. Second, Paul insists that in the resurrection, Christians are also given victory through Jesus, which is to say that they participate in Christ's own victory. In chapter 15, this victory includes the defeat of all powers and authorities and ultimately of death itself. Moreover, their bodies are imbued with glory. Survivors are raised to an existence without the presence of hostile threats to their agency or bodily autonomy. Moreover, although it is true that the bodily agency of the resurrected believer is not absolute in the sense that they are still subject to Jesus's kingly rule, they are subjects to a king who through his death and resurrection has undone the power structures and hierarchies that characterize this present age. In the resurrection, abusers, harassers, and assaulters can make no claim on our bodies. Our bodies have been raised in glory, which among other things is a term that connotes agency and subjectivity. Heather Bertman speaks of this kind of freedom and agency in her essay. She writes, A couple of years ago, in the warmth of summer, I stood naked on a dock, and my body was my body. My two girlfriends were standing naked beside me, and their bodies were their bodies. Our breasts were our breasts. Our clothes were our clothes that we had chosen to wear and chosen to take off, leaving them in warm heaps on the chilled wood next to the damp footprints, which were also ours. For me two survivors, the hope of resurrection is to eternally experience this same sort of glorious dignity and agency in our embodiment, so that we can finally say, to the death-bearing gaze of our harassers and to the death-bearing touch of our abusers and our assaulters, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Okay. Um, so where do we go from here? <laughs> I, I have some questions. But... Um, I wonder, this last line I read, again, because I've read this now three or four times, uh, because it's that good and I need to hear it uh, over and over again, is um, when we can finally say to the death-bearing gaze and our harassers, I also kind of had a moment where I realized, oh, our harassers might be in the new heavens and new earth with us as well. <laughs> so I, I wonder... We talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but we'll all have those memories, those shared memories, both of the abused and the abuser. Um, and how do you how do you think that works out? <laughs> to throw you a softball. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, as I think about what it means to have um, continuity of personhood in the resurrection. I really um, 
and to and to participate in that resurrection reality now, which is part of what I'm trying to get at with that last line, that actually we need to be able to say this now. Whatever we're going to say in the resurrection, I want to say we should be able to say now. So... Which is not the same as encouraging somebody like you. You need to be able to say this right now. No, you need to be able to. Yeah, that's, but just theologically, that's, I want to reaffirm yes. that like we don't, we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to postpone victory, um, even even when we're clinging into it with fingernails um, and saying it as as I do in this last line um, with sort of a defiance that I don't fully believe myself yet. Um, I'm not there, but I want to. I, I still want to say that this is true, but I don't feel like it is. If that's maybe a better way to say that. Um, but when I think about continuity in the resurrection and memory in the resurrection, I don't think it will say. I don't think it will do to speak about redemption in a way that erases memory. I think memory and personhood are too tied up um, together in some sense. Uh, and I think there's all sorts of caveats that we could make, um, for that. But I think, um, when we talk about redemption in a way that, uh, you know, causes us to erase part of our story or our history, that's not to be really redemption. And it also doesn't map very well onto what Paul is saying. Like he's preaching, preaching Christ crucified and, you know, (laughs) if he's preaching Christ crucified after the resurrection, it seems to be precisely because that story of Christ's crucifixion is important to who Christ is in some way. Um, And I think, you know, for all the qualitative differences and theological differences between us and Jesus, I still think that um, his personhood, including his experiences, crucifixion, um, is important for how we think about our personhood and experiences in redemption. So, um, so all that to say, I don't think we can, I don't think we can hope for, erasure. I think that that's kind of a false, I think that that short circuits the actual healing and redemption process. But equally, um, there's an affirmation of Jesus's scars, but they're not like open gaping wounds um, that seem to be causing Jesus pain. So my hope in the resurrection is that I can talk about my story in a way that affirms um, the goodness of God who met me in that hurt. Um, and that's how I've kind of learned how to process this. And I want to keep really clear, um, there is nothing that will make sexual abuse a good experience. I'm really, really, I really want to be sure to say that. Um, I don't want to be in the business of calling suffering good. I think that is really horrifically problematic um, for theology. But we can name God's goodness in the midst of suffering, and I think we can continue to proclaim God's goodness in the midst of suffering now, and we can continue to proclaim God's goodness for eternity um, because we have experienced suffering and experienced God's goodness in the middle of that. Um, And I think our memory, I hope our memory will be of God's goodness in the midst, um, which takes away the pain associated with that memory. Right. That that's yeah. my hope. And I realize that there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot that I just said. No, uh, no it's I, and we I can think, go in a bunch of different directions, but that's my Well, it's like there's Gnosticism <laughs> right around the corner here. Some kind of escapism, some kind of if I can just get away from this particular p- particularity of this body and this lived experience, 
Um, and what you're, what you keep reminding us throughout the paper is Paul doubles down on the particularity and the horror of the experience and that there's something redeemable about that. Even this is why we need such a good theological imagination, because we have to at least be able to see implications or uh, indications of that redemption somehow. Yeah. And I don't think he's trying to make, you know, he's not trying to glorify the crucifixion in the middle of it. I think that's important to say, like the, the thing that's redeemable is not, you know, it's not the crucifixion. Um, the thing that's redeemable is is Jesus. <laughs> Where they're going to be like, you know, the, the new masculinity is you have to be abused and tortured by people and double down on this. Come on, let's go, guys. Uh, yeah. Um, but that, yeah, that there is something redeemable despite the horror. Um, I wonder, so let me go nerdy on you. This is on script, so we have free reign to do oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Uh, a lot of what you say here, you know, right, I'm I'm the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought, so I feel like I have to do my token work here. Of um, it sounds, I mean, it sounds very similar to impulses I see in the Torah, the the Pentateuch of the protection of the vulnerable, and especially the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth laws. That that's the general principle, but the particular instance that's been given in the Exodus iteration is if any of you has a servant, you strike them in the eye, and if any of you has a servant, you strike them in the tooth. And right, so there's this kind of like you with power, if you violate somebody's body who is under your your power or influence, then you're the one who's going to be in trouble, right? You're the, you're the one who loses. So I wonder how much you think um, Paul is reifying or contextualizing some of that protection of the vulnerable body theology in the Torah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question um, and not one that I uh not that not one that i that i explored too much in this paper simply because of the passages that i um picked but if we looked i think more closely at first corinthians and especially i would say if we looked more closely at the vice list in romans i think that that kind of thinking is exactly what we see um i think those instances where paul is talking about sexual sin um, we in the West have not yet begun to reckon with the power differentials in so many of the situations that Paul is condemning. Uh, and I think that protection of vulnerable bodies or judgment upon the powerful that are exploiting vulnerable bodies is exactly the logic um, that we see throughout um, throughout 1 Corinthians. I think it's what lies uh, beneath the conversation about veiling in 1 Corinthians, um, this need to, you know, like that's a dignifying way of protecting vulnerable bodies um, that we don't, we don't talk about. <laughs> um, I, I think there's, a, there's some of that dynamic going on in 1 Corinthians 12, even with spiritual gifts. I think there's certainly that dynamic going on in, you know, discussions of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians. Um, even in discussion with, you know, uniting with prostitutes, like there's, there's agency there, but we miss the cultural dynamics. Uh, if we think that there's an even, you know, there's not power differentials between patrons and prostitutes, um, or the vice list in, in Romans one, I think is a good example of where Paul, um, is speaking about the violation of bodies and we take it to be a condemnation of sexual sin, but actually, um, I think, I think there's a num if we if we read that with an, some attention paid to to you know who's actually in Paul's audience, um, you know 
if if the if the congregation is roughly reflective of Rome, you've got a majority of his congregation in Rome that used to be slaves or are currently slaves. And as slaves, they were completely subjected to the sexual whims of their masters. And that's just the reality of it. So to hear um, that God not only sees uh, the violation that is perpetrated upon their bodies, but, you know, will judge and actually is judging has, you know, his wrath is being revealed from heaven, um, you know, I think in a redemptive way, ultimately, but um, in a way that brings good to the uh the ones who have had their bodies violated. I think that's a really important dynamic to that text. So, yes, I think can I, I think sharpen we should that be for attending to that. Or yes, <laughs> let me restate it to make sure everybody caught what you just said because you said it so uh, so easily. Um, <laughs> is like, that well? Yeah, let, me say, let me say let me say the flip side. Let me because I, I think what most people do is they read Romans one or they read these vice and virtue lists and they think oh. God is telling me as an individual with free agency who can kind of do navigate my world ethically and morally, this is how I should be. Um, and rather than saying this is a community where there are people who are in uh, disparate power uh, situations and some some even within that community would be guilty of violating other people. Oh, absolutely. Community. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just an important point that uh, if you're raised in, in the American pietistic tradition, uh, which kind of infected every tradition in America, it's so easy to read this. It's just like a be good, do these things, avoid these things, and, and you're good to go. Um, yeah, where I think a much a, Romans one eighteen and following is read much more robustly if we consider the community within uh, that Paul is speaking to and the society that Paul is speaking to and all of its systems um, and and you know hierarchy as I said in this paper, is measured by the degree of agency that you have over your body. And it's a pyramid, so only the emperor has complete agency over his body. But then within a household, only the oldest man has, you know, the paterfamilias, only the, he has agency over his body. And the women of the family and the slaves of the family don't have agency over their bodies. So we should read that vice list as a condemnation. I think of that whole system where people are denied agency over their bodies um, and are sinned against their bodies are sinned against because of, um, or that in that lack of agency is exploited. Uh, I think we need, I think that's a really important dynamic for Romans one. And, and that even within Paul's thinking there seems to be room for somebody who could have a servant, but not violate them or in, in any way, you know, not violate their body in any way, but actually have a mutually beneficial relationship between those two. If they could regard each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and lots of other things going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a tough issue. I think just our, our impulse to translate the Greek word doulos with servant um, suggests that we, we aren't comfortable with the fact that there's slavery in the ancient world. And I honestly, I think that we shouldn't be comfortable with it and we shouldn't try to explain it or justify it. I think at some sense, Paul is in some sense, Paul is, you know, making a theological argument against the system because he lacks, well, maybe not because he lacks, but, and also he lacks the um, social capital to make real world changes to that right. system. So all he he's can not, perhaps he's not a do, member. yeah, yeah, is to is to call for agency and dignity, and equally to um, express condemnation where bodies are exploited. Right. 
Um, I have one last question for you, or maybe it's a, I throw something on the table. Um, the, uh, I think when you're talking about thinking about the, the worst thing that's ever happened to you, and then you need to be able to forgive that person, that dialogue. I think, uh, the, the emphasis on body that you have in this, in this paper is so important for us in the sense that if we think about leadership in the church and how you guide this conversation in, in our own circles, I think I, I would condemn uh, American evangelicalism and, you know, Catholics fall into this as well. I don't know where the Orthodox fall on this topic, but this kind of soul centric focus that it's all about what's going on in your soul. And so as long as somebody, you know, if they've done something to you, but they're the phrase that I've heard used is, but they're really sorry about what happened. Um, I guess, why does that distort the lens of what Paul's trying to do, I guess, in this conversation? Yeah, I think for me, it distorts it for a couple of reasons. One, um, it it changes the focus back to the perpetrator of the violence. And I think what Paul is refusing to do is to allow the perpetrator's narrative to to dictate the conversation and the terms in first Corinthians. It's Jesus who was crucified, but he's not going to countenance Roman justifications. And he's not, I, I can't imagine that if, you know, Rome said, Oh, I'm really sorry about that. We feel really bad about what happened. Um, that it would change Paul's message because the whole system is broken. And I think, the Me Too movement should show us that. It's not just it's not just something bad happened to me when I was a kid. It's something bad happened to me and thousands or millions of other women who have been unable to speak about what has happened to us because of the toxic culture that tells us that we have been shamed. So we need to address that too. And what I've said here, um, even if we talk about forgiveness, I think it's, it needs to be done in a way that centers, um, centers my story, not the story of the perpetrator, which has been the story that typically is centered in narratives about forgiveness. We don't ever acknowledge, um, the hurt, which I think is a really important, um, and telling the story and telling the truth. I'm, I'm, kind of riffing on Desmond Tutu's uh, book of forgiving. And I think, I think we miss that. I think we, we, we don't want to hear the story because it's uncomfortable. And so we move on. So I'm sorry about what happened, just that locution. Um, you know, it's just, it, it, it totally sidesteps what I'm saying here about the importance of not euphemizing something like this. Um, So I think that's problematic in the, in the, I don't know if that's properly passive voice or not, but um, that passive statement of it, in some ways I want to affirm that, that it, what, because it does account for the fact that, um, and this is the part that I think is less discussed as well, is that um, abusers are traumatized by their own abusing as well. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're destroying themselves as well. Yeah. Um, and so there is a sense of what happened to both of you, uh, which I think we, we could talk more about in a different setting, but um but that I'm not talking about that here. I'm talking about that kind of, uh, yeah, I really feel badly about what happened and I wish it would have never happened. Um, as if that person's agency wasn't the agency in that body, wasn't the thing that caused the other body, um, 
to be hurt in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I was just riffing on myself there. Well, and I think (laughs) I will never have the experience of my abuser saying, I'm sorry for what happened. Um, I shared a bit of what happened (laughs) um, when we finally confronted my uncle's family. What I didn't share and actually um, has come to light since I wrote this paper uh, and now between then and now is that my uncle died this year. So I have thought, yeah, I, I mean, and I have all sorts of mixed feelings about this. And what I didn't talk about in, in the paper, um, but I plan to talk about more in the, I'm hoping to write a book length treatment of this topic is how, how to do forgiveness in light of the resurrection. And I do think it needs to be in that order. We need to, to reckon with the resurrection first before we can begin to think through resurrection forgiveness. Um, because it's taken me a long time to, to be able to pray for my uncle, um, to be able to see him as a person loved by Jesus. And I, and I affirm that. I think what he did grieved Jesus uh, deeply. And I think that Jesus wants to redeem my uncle because he loves my uncle. And that's a hard, that's a hard statement to make. But I, I know that it's true, even if I don't feel like it's true. Um, so part of living into this resurrection declaration of, um, of freedom for me is to be able to say, I forgive you um, and, and mean it. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm not, I, I practice every day and I'm, I'm not there yet, but I believe that if I keep living in to this resurrection freedom through the spirit that I will be able to say, I forgive you, um, and wish for his redemption. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for leading us in this deeply theological and practical discussion. Thanks, Drew. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 